I wrote a song to the tune of a church hymn I used to sing in the Methodist church when I was still a churchgoer. It's called I Am the Church, but I've changed it to I Am the Country. I am the country, you are the country, we are the country together. All across the planet, all around the world, yes, we're the country together. The country's not a president who thinks he's very regal. The country is an idea, the country is a people. I am the country. You are the country, we are the country together. All across the nation, all around the world, yes, we're the country together. I just listened to my last episode prior to this one, and a lot has happened since I posted that one. It was back in October of last year, 2020. I predicted Trump's shenanigans, which doesn't exactly make me a psychic, because anybody who had half a brain at that point, and that wasn't a QAnon conspiracy theorist, would have known Trump was going to pull some shit. I mean, he was signaling the rigged election narrative at least as far back as last summer. But not even I had inciting an insurrection on my dumpster fire bingo card. Even before January 6th, I was worried. But not even I would have predicted that Cittolini would have whipped up the quacking on believers into a murderous rage. But he did, and he loved it. And so now these asshole Republicans are crying about how we are pouring gas on the fire. And it's the fire that they started. The hypocrisy of the Republican Party is stunning. But I want to thank you for listening to this episode, my newest one, of the Roaring Persons podcast. It's a podcast that is trying to dismantle white supremacy, encourage voting, encourage diversity and inclusivity and equality, most of all. It all boils down to equality. So let's talk about white supremacy and how white people like me have benefited and been complicit. Thanks for listening. So I have been thinking a lot about white supremacy and how do we dismantle it. Um, I have come to a realization or I've had a reckoning and a an epiphany over the last few years that I am the granddaughter of a white supremacist. He's long dead. And it wasn't just him, it was his wife also. Um, But I was in denial for most of my 60 years of life about this. I mean, yes, he was openly racist within the family. I always thought there was a distinction. I thought he was all bark, no bite. And the strange term I had in my head that he was a polite racist, that he wouldn't say things to people openly outside of the family, just within the family. So, you know, somehow I guess it was treated as somewhat acceptable, somewhat normal. I mean, I did think of it as normal for him. So the word normalized comes to mind. 
And I've been trying to figure out why, because he had this, he didn't like people in general. He didn't like his family that much, although I didn't think of him as a terrible grandfather. I don't, I just, he wasn't much of a grandfather at all. We called him Clarence instead of, you know, some nickname like Papa or Grandpa or Granddad or anything like that. He was only 39 when I was born because my father was 17 when I was born. So the family was pretty dysfunctional. And his mother was, we used to tell all kinds of racist stories that were really embarrassing, but we would go visit her every Sunday and my grandfather would be there too. We'd all get together, we'd go out to eat. But again, my grandparents were not loving, affectionate people. And I don't really remember having much of any conversations with them throughout my whole life. Uh, it, we were just, we had a strange dynamic. I mean, family was important to us, but we were not tight-knit. Now, my parents, I thought of them as trying to reject racism. Because on my mother's side, there was plenty of racism as well. I, my mother's brother, my uncle, was a cop. And I thought of him as kind of a polite racist also, because he, he actually expressed remorse for his racism sometimes. And I thought that was progress. Now, let me give you a little background. I grew up in Kansas. I was born on the Missouri side of Kansas City, and then we moved to Kansas in what I now recognize as white flight. But my parents' reasoning for wanting to move to Kansas was because the schools were better. Of course, out in Kansas, with a 2% black population, the schools were all white until I was in high school. And then there was two kids in my whole school, or at least I only remember two black kids. And I just didn't think that there was horrible racism going on in my environment. There, I'm sure there was, and I don't know how I was so sheltered from it. And then when I was 13, it was the first time I'd ever seen Gone with the Wind, and I saw it in a theater, and it was a big to-do. And I really bought into that whole myth of the happy slave and, you know, the, the grace and tragedy of the old South. I, you know, Gone with the Wind idealized it for me. And, um... I knew terrible things happened to slaves, but I had no concept of things like they actually happened. Again, I was brought up by parents who I really think were actively trying to reject racism, but I don't, they weren't anti-racist. They weren't pushing back on the relatives that were telling racist stories and making racist comments. Um, except one, one story or one time, my father, did something that still still lives in my memory vividly to this day. I was 13 and my best friend and I wanted to go see this group called Black Oak Arkansas and they were a pretty raunchy hard rock group which wasn't my style. I liked you know sort of soft rock and Pink Floyd that type of thing, the Beatles. So I'm not sure why we wanted to go see this concert so badly, but my parents wouldn't let us go unless they came along. And um, I remember being really embarrassed by the lead singer who was known as Jim Dandy. And there was a song, apparently it was a cover of an old song called Jim Dandy. And um, he was really raunchy and it was really embarrassing because 
my parents brought me up in a very prudish kind of way, I thought, at least at the time, in my adolescence, I was kind of a prude. Um, but at the end of this concert, oh, let me back up and say, the opening acts for Black Oak, Arkansas were Kansas and Foghat, both of which were much better groups than Black Oak, Arkansas, and even my parents said so. But at the end, Jim Dandy, the lead singer of Black Oak, Arkansas, ran around the stage with a Confederate flag, um, and my father blew a gasket. He was livid, and it was the end of the concert, so you know it was just the it was just time to leave anyway. But he yanked us out of there and was furious, and I I was so up I was so scared because I was terrified of my parents being upset with me and criticizing me or saying anything to me, quite frankly. It was a little bit traumatizing because it, it, I remember it so well now. And yet I'm kind of grateful for that memory now because it really imprinted in my brain that my dad was not okay with the Confederacy. And it wouldn't be until years and years later when I was an adult and married and had kids that I stumbled across a book called Confederates in the Attic. Um, I should have done some research to so that I would know who wrote that. But it was about people like my relatives who still were kind of Southern sympathizers. And what I learned from it, or maybe it was a book about um, Jesse James, who is from the part of Missouri that my family lives in, uh, the counties around Kansas City, just sort of north and east of Kansas City, were basically the only counties in Missouri that where there was slave holding. Um, but I knew Missouri was sort of a border state and sort of, you know, well, not sort of. I knew it was Southern sympathizing, but it never went over to the Confederacy. But it turns out I am from an area that had some pretty serious racist history, as the whole country does, of course. I have to say, I never saw any Jim Crow type of signage. I never saw, you know, water fountains for black people only or whites only. It was just, it was understood that the neighborhood my parents are from in Kansas City, which is known as Northeast, was controlled by the Italians. And I remember hearing people say that the Italians would never let black people into the neighborhood. So there's all that. and. I remember trying to explain to a girl who was in a class I took at ACC several years ago when I was trying to finish a degree. She was black and I was trying to explain that my grandfather was racist but that my parents weren't. And I remember making very feeble excuses, I guess, and she said, well, you know, that doesn't make it so make it okay. And it's the first time I think I was confronted by a black person about racism. And I remember being ashamed. I remember thinking, yeah, it's not okay. And I didn't realize that until now. And I was like 50 years old at the time. I'm 60 now. So I have been thinking a lot about this because obviously white supremacy is raising its ugly head and it's crawled out of its hole. And goddamn Trump is the reason. Now it was there all along, but it was, you know, polite so to speak, as I called it, or I used to call it. It was more like it was, like the racists, like the racists in my family knew that it wasn't okay, but they weren't gonna stop. And again, I never thought of my family as being involved in any um, 
anything other than comments and stories. Like my great-grandmother, the grandmother that I mentioned that we would go visit every Sunday, who was my grandfather's mother, she would tell a really embarrassing story about when she was a little girl in Caney, Kansas, and how she got very excited when she saw a black woman selling watermelon on the outskirts of town. And she wanted to buy some, and she ran home to ask her father if she could, and she said, when she told the story, she didn't use the N-word. She used colored. And in the early 60s, when I was a kid, that was the polite term, as in National Association for Colored People, NAACP. Um, and it's an embarrassing story. I don't even want to repeat it because I don't think I could tell it without sounding like a jerk. And I'm trying not to be a jerk. I'm trying to do my part to dismantle white supremacy because I was brought up in it. I was oblivious to it. I was in denial about it although not complete denial, as I may have mentioned before. But I knew how my relatives were, and they were not going to have a revelation that this was all wrong. Uh, as a matter of fact, well into my 30s, my grandmother, who was actually my step-grandmother, and my grandfather got really got into genealogy. And my it was because of my father. My father really got into genealogy, and he was inspired by this miniseries Roots because he loved Alex Haley, who wrote Roots. Uh, and my father was inspired by Roots to start looking into our genealogy. And that was way back in the 70s when there was, n was, was no internet. And if you did any research on your family, you had to go around to the little towns where you thought your relatives lived and look for records and that kind of thing. And that's what he did. And he drug us out to central Kansas to find my five times great-grandfather um, to find the graves of my grandfather and grandmother, the, the ones that came over from Germany. And yes, I'm German, or that branch of the family is German. Another branch of my family descends from a passenger on the Mayflower, so I am quite the wasp. Not really proud of it, but I remember when my father explained to me what being wasp was, and he didn't say it was good or better or anything like that. He just explained what wasp stood for. And I remember thinking, I guess I was beginning to understand my privilege, although it didn't crystallize in my thinking as privilege at that time. But I was aware that you were better off being a wasp than anything else in this country. Anyway, um, I, I'm trying to figure out how to be an anti-racist because it's not enough to be not racist. It's not enough to say, oh, my my parent or my grandparents and my oh I remember I was going to tell you this what my grandmother said to me after they got started getting into genealogy I didn't know at the time that she was communicating with other members of the sons of the confederacy because apparently she descended from a confederate soldier uh, and I, when I would later do my own research uh, on the family tree through with ancestry.com I saw her communications with other members of the Sons of Confederacy or the Daughters of Confederacy. And I just recently learned that one of their um, narratives is that slave owners got a bad rap. And that's exactly what my grandmother said to me uh, when I was visiting for the holidays. And this is after I'd moved to Texas. I'm in Texas now, lived, but lived in Kansas City for the first 20 years of my life. The last 40 have been in Texas. So. Two very racist 
environments to grow up in, but yes. And she said to me, slave owners got, I think the slave owners got a bad rap. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't believe she said that to me. I, and I just, I, my mouth probably hung open. And I said, well, you cannot enslave people and expect them not to rise up and expect them to, to be okay with that. And the conversation quickly ended because I was not sympathetic. And I'm, I'm glad I, you know, said something, but I wish I had, I wish I'd said more. I wish I had said, you know, this is, this is not okay. For one thing, racism and white supremacy are not sustainable because you can look at these groups. And I just recently listened to a guy named Christopher Piccolini who was in um, white supremacy groups and um, got out of them. But they, there's a lot of infighting within those groups. There's a lot of anger already. And that's why these people gravitate to them. And I, you know, it's usually guys. And, you know, another part of my background is that I ended up marrying a guy who was, I didn't think of him as a white supremacist at all because he once said, oh, I'm not for white supremacy, but I do think, you know, the races should be separated. And I remember thinking, well, that's stupid because that's not going to happen. Um, and because of my influence on my now deceased ex-husband, he did begin to feel remorseful for his racist attitudes. Um, but white people have to do more than be remorseful. You've got to take actions to push back on it. You've got to push back on your relatives who are racist. you got to push back on your acquaintances and friends. And I have tried to do that in the last handful of years of my life, but it's, it's really hard. It's very intimidating when somebody feels free to express racist attitudes. And especially because I was brought up in the Midwest where manners were everything. We were brought up to be so mannerly that you didn't, you didn't push back on racist comments that were uttered by your relatives or your acquaintances. But with my ex, you know, I did push back. Well, albeit I wasn't like a crusader or an activist at that point in my life. I was raising his four kids from his previous marriage and then had a child of my own. So I raised five kids for five and a half years. And my husband, he was a mess. He was an alcoholic. And for most of those, for most of the eight years we were together, he was sober. He was sober for five of them. Um, I influenced him to quit. But then when he fell off the wagon after all those years, it ended everything, but it was sort of a slow demise. Um, but after we split up, I will say that I am proud that he ended up volunteering for the Ann Richards campaign because it was back in the 90s when she ran and won the governorship. So I have had some positive influence in, the term, in terms of fighting racism. But I have to say, I've heard every member of my family, including my kids and my siblings, say really racist things at certain points of their life, mostly when they were a lot younger, in their teens and early 20s. And everybody now is very remorseful for those attitudes, including at least one of my kids has expressed real, seri you know, real serious remorse and contrition for the racist attitude she used to have. And it really bothered me because I thought I did not bring her up to believe those things um, or to say those kind of things. Where did this come from? And it came from her friends. It came from her 
classmates here in Austin, Texas, which is supposed to be a liberal enclave in the state of Texas. But apparently it's also home to a lot of white supremacist groups, at least on the outskirts, out in the, you know, out when you get several miles outside of Austin. And with everything I'm seeing and hearing these days in the news and with my own eyes around the election, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what we can do about it. How do we push back on this? Um, you know, and I noticed uh, there was the, these white supremacists are really into the conspiracy theories now, and they don't like being called white supremacists. They, they think of themselves as like alt-right or uh, QAnon, I guess. I, this QAnon bullshit, something's got to be done about that. And I, in my next episode, I'm going to talk about a guy that was uh, putting forth QAnon conspiracies on his Facebook page. But I've noticed uh, he's deleted all of them. But I, w I will tell you how I know that he was heavily involved in far-right conspiracy theories uh, in my next episode, because that goes hand in hand with all of this. Um, going back to my ex-husband's background, his family was extremely racist, very openly. And he had a really horrible drinking problem. It really destroyed his life. And I could not understand why he drank like that. Yes, his father was also an alcoholic, but his father was a very functioning alcoholic, was an executive for an oil company that made a lot of money in his position. And um, this, my ex-husband's family looked very good on paper, but there was even more and even scarier dysfunction in that family than in mine. And I'll go into a little bit of that in the future also. But I will say this, what I learned about my ex-husband's childhood made me realize that he had a nightmarish childhood and that's where the alcoholism came to be his way of coping. He was trying to forget the horrible things that had happened to him in his childhood and that's what I think about these conspiracy theorists and these kids who go into these alt-right and white supremacist groups like this Christopher Piccolini that I mentioned earlier. He got into it when he was 14 years old and he just, he didn't have an identity and he talked about how his parents worked so much that they just weren't around much to help him forge his identity. So he was sort of drifting. And my uncle that I mentioned who was a cop, he once said to me that guys, especially in their late teens and early 20s, just want to kill. I, you know, it's kind of a, a common feature in the personalities of, of guys, especially. And I wonder, I also, I listened to everything where, where people were in white supremacist groups and then got out. And I heard one about a girl very recently on NPR, although I don't remember what program it was. And she got into it because she got involved with a guy who was into it. So I feel like that's where the girls get into it, although that's not the only excuse for it. We gotta think about this and we gotta talk about this. And if you are a white supremacist or in a group that you know is white supremacist, even if you're in some denial about it and you're thinking about what's your exit strategy, you wanna get out, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, send me an email at roaringpersons at yahoo.com. 
Again, that's the word roaring and then persons at yahoo.com. Roaring persons is all one word. And let me know your story. Keep yourself, you know, keep yourself anonymous if you feel the need to. I have no desire to out anybody or dox anybody or um, ruin anybody's life. But if there's anything I can do to help somebody get out of that thinking and get out of those groups, I'm more than willing to try. That's um, about the only thing I can think to do with my background and my knowledge and my concern for this. Because something's got to give. We can't keep letting this escalate. That's all for this episode now. I want to thank you for tuning in. I've been very sporadic about producing these episodes, especially because of the pandemic and not being able to get with, get together with the guy who's produced my other podcast, which is called The Kim Bob Baking Show. Please look that one up also if you are so inclined. It's just one I tried to be funny and talk about baking and trying to just think about things that are not politics and bad news. Just baking. Oh, and a little cannabis advocacy because I'm all about that too. So yeah. Be well, kids. Be strong. Speak up about racism. It. We can't keep going with this. We can't keep tearing each other apart. A house divided against itself cannot stand, as the great President Lincoln said. Just uh, email me, even if you're not into white supremacy or trying to get out of a group, I'd like to hear from anybody who is taking the time to listen to this. I'm very grateful to you. Have a wonderful life in the meantime.